Hello, and welcome to the October 2015 episode of the Lesbian Gay Law Knows podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Just a reminder, if you're listening to us on iTunes and enjoying our program, please do take a minute to rate us highly so that we will continue to gain more listeners. All right, first up, we thought we had seen the worst of the Alabama Supreme Court earlier this year when it defied a federal district court and halted the issuance of marriage licenses to same-sex couples. But they are back with another spurious ruling, this time involving the full faith and credit of a second parent adoption decree from Georgia. Can you tell us about it, Art? Yeah, this uh, this was a bit of a shocker. Uh, a uh, decision under which a lesbian co-parent is going to be denied visitation rights with uh, children she was raising with her former partner because of a blatant, blatant misinterpretation of uh, the situation uh, that they found themselves in and uh, misapplication of the full faith and credit clause of the U.S. Constitution. So what we should start with is to make clear that there has been over the past 15, 20 years quite a bit of debate over whether one state is required to recognize marriages contracted in another state by virtue of the full faith and credit clause. And many of the people whose scholarship is in this area raised questions there about whether recognition of marriages was required constitutionally or whether it would just be an artifact of common law traditions, comedy, uh, and uh, sort of a a case-by-case analysis. And uh, the Congress stepped into it with the Defense of Marriage Act, where in Section 2 of that statute, uh, they said that no state shall be required by the Constitution to give full faith and credit to same-sex marriages contracted in another state. And that provision of the Defense of Marriage Act was struck down this year in June as part of the Obergefell decision. Uh, The court basically recognized the proposition that it violated the due process and equal protection rights of married same-sex couples for a state to refuse to recognize their marriage, uh, provided it was legally contracted where it was contracted. Uh, But one issue as to which no one had any doubt is that when a court issues an adoption decree, that's a judicial judgment, and it is entitled to recognition anywhere in the country. Uh, The only basis for contesting the application of the full faith and credit clause to an adoption decree is that the court that issued the adoption decree did not have jurisdiction over the parties or did not have jurisdiction over the subject matter. Those are the only grounds uh, that have generally been recognized as a basis for refusing to recognize an adoption decree from another state. So this is a case involving a uh, lesbian couple who were living together as partners in Alabama, and they had some kids together, and they really wanted the co-parent to be the adoptive mother of the kids. And this was not something that was possible in Alabama at the time. But they heard from friends in Georgia that there were trial judges in Atlanta and Fulton County who were willing to approve such adoptions. The only problem being that you had to be resident in order to petition for adoption. Uh, You had to show that the child was living in Georgia and that the prospective parents were in Georgia, but the the child was really the focus. So what they did was they rented a place in Georgia 
they never really moved full-time, according to some of the testimony in this case. Uh, but they established a residence there. Uh, a home study was done there. They, filed, they stayed the requisite period of time. They filed an adoption petition. The adoption was approved. Then they moved back to Georgia. And subsequently, uh, after a few years, they split up. And as happens in a lot of this litigation, uh, the uh, co-parent was the one who moved out. The children stayed with the biological mother. And after some time, she uh, cut off contact for the co-parent. And the co-parent goes into court uh, pointing out that not only was there a legal adoption in uh, in the state of Georgia, which should be given full faith and credit, thereby making her a parent so she can sue for visitation rights or some form of joint custody, uh, but that they had actually taken those adoption papers uh, with them to the appropriate office in uh, a clerk's office in Alabama or health department, wherever you went for a new birth certificate, and they got new birth certificates for the kids, showing uh, the co-parent as legal parent. Uh, so she claimed uh, as a parental right after the breakup that she should be entitled to continue her relationship with these children. And the case eventually got to the Alabama Supreme Court. Uh, the, the trial court had, uh, uh, in this case, uh, I believe... Uh, ruled in the co-parents' yeah, favor. Ruled in their favor. And, and uh, so did the appellate it was, court. It was approved by the intermediate appellate court. And then it goes to the Supreme Court, which reverses, with only one judge dissenting, in a procurium opinion. And they said, surprisingly, uh, it seems to me that uh, the issues that were raised by the biological mother in opposing uh, her former partner's petition, she said, we never really were residents of Georgia. So the court really didn't have jurisdiction over us. And furthermore, that Georgia law didn't authorize second parent adoptions. In fact, Georgia, the Georgia adoption statute says that for a third party to adopt a child, someone unrelated to adopt a child, the child's legal parents have to formally give up their parental status. Uh, and that hadn't happened in this case. She was the biological mother, and she did not agree to give up her parental status in order for her partner to adopt. And we should say maybe for readers who, or listeners who aren't uh uh, experts in civil procedure. And these are all interesting arguments. They, they'd make more sense in a Georgia court, though, than an Alabama court. A Georgia right. court would normally be the one interpreting the requirements of a Georgia statute. Well, the, the issue is that uh, second parent adoptions are not contested proceedings. Uh, so the parties to those proceedings are all in favor of the adoption. There's no one to argue to the opposition unless uh, the court has uh, appointed a guardian ad litem for the child to to argue contrarily, or unless the state tries to intervene, which we've seen in Texas and a few other places where state attorney generals have tried to intervene in proceedings. Uh, but in this case, it was an uncontested proceeding in Georgia. No one raised any jurisdictional issues. Everyone conceded jurisdiction. Uh, and the, uh, the reason they had gone there was because they heard that there were judges in Atlanta who were willing to approve these adoptions. Uh, and we saw that phenomenon here in New York long before the New York Court of Appeals approved second parent adoptions. We had some trial court judges and uh, people who practiced in the area figured out who they were, who you, you needed to get your case before in order to get an adoption approved at a time when uh, the appellate division and some other courts were not uh, in favor of it. Uh, so in this case, the uh, Georgia Supreme Court 
takes a look at the situation, and although they could have based this on the idea that the Georgia court didn't have jurisdiction over the parties, instead they based it on the theory that because the Georgia statute clearly on its face required as a prerequisite that the legal parents surrender their parental status in order for a third party to adopt, they said the trial court did not have jurisdiction to grant this adoption, and therefore it did not have to be given full faith and credit by the Georgia courts. Uh, a dissenting judge pointed out that this was ridiculous, that in fact uh, an essential element of full faith and credit is that you can't reopen or, or relitigate the merits of the case. As long as the case that issued the decision in the other state had jurisdiction over the parties and the subject matter, its interpretation of it, the laws in that state is binding. And what the Georgia Supreme Court purported to base their analysis on was a dissenting opinion from a denial of review in a similar case that had arisen in Georgia, where the state Supreme Court had refused to review the lower court decision, and a dissenting judge said, no, 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 the lower court got it wrong, you can't approve this kind of an adoption. The Alabama Supreme Court says, well, that was the correct analysis. And the dissenting judge says, well, that doesn't matter. He says, I happen to agree that that's the correct analysis, but under the full faith and credit clause, we're not allowed to inquire into the merits. We're supposed to honor a judgment rendered by the courts of a sister state without question, as long as the courts had jurisdiction over the parties and the subject matter. And it's clear from, if you look at Georgia case law, it's clear that the trial court had jurisdiction in all matters of adoption. And so it was improper not to accord full faith and credit. Well, the interpretation of the full faith and credit clause is a matter of federal constitutional law. So uh, assuming that uh, representatives of the uh, co-parent who was seeking visitation are interested in pursuing it, I think it's very likely that we will see a cert petition here. We should also add the Alabama Supreme Court is entirely elected and... Uh Roy Moore, the Chief Justice, who uh, has declared war on the U.S. Supreme Court and who says that uh, the state shouldn't have to abide by the Obergefell decision, uh, he actually has a, a motion pending from a probate judge who was a party in that case from last spring where the, they prohibited the probate judges from issuing marriage licenses. Uh, uh, one of the probate judges filed a petition calling upon the court to declare that the state is not required to comply with the Obergefell because it's an illegitimate decision. As Chief Justice Roberts unhelpfully said in his dissenting opinion, it has nothing to do with the Constitution, uh, repeating Justice Scalia's calumny that this is like five lawyers deciding for the whole country, when in fact, as we know, uh, those of us who were following the marriage litigation over the previous two years leading up to Obergefell, this was a near consensus of scores and scores of federal judges. So there, there appears to be a gay exception to uh, generally accepted legal principles when you get to the Alabama Supreme Court. Well, actually, you know, as someone who's been uh, looking at this area of the law for 30 more years now, uh, I always knew there was a gay exception to the Equal Protection Clause. There was a gay exception to the Due Process Clause. Uh, the Supreme Court has gone a long way towards stamping that out, but evidently we haven't finished the process. I should mention that uh, the co-parent in this case is represented both by local counsel and by the National Center for Lesbian Rights. So I think that increases the likelihood that this is a case that will knock on the Supreme Court's door. And although the U.S. Supreme Court thus far has been unwilling to deal with uh, these sorts of issues in the context of gay adoptions. Uh, we had a case 
from the Fifth Circuit that knocked on the door, where uh, the Fifth Circuit held that a federal district court in Louisiana did not have the authority to order the state of Louisiana to accord full faith and credit to an adoption that had been uh, taken out in New York, uh, where the child who was adopted had been born in Louisiana. So the adoptive parents, who were a same-sex male couple, they wanted a new birth certificate. Louisiana refused. Uh, They sued, and the district court said, yeah, they should have the birth certificate under full faith and credit. Their adoption had to be recognized, and the Fifth Circuit reversed and said that the full faith and credit clause can only be enforced in the state court because uh, only the state court can order the state uh, authorities to issue the marriage license. So in this case, the co-parent took the state court route and ended up before the Alabama Supreme Court, which is probably the worst state Supreme Court in the nation on gay rights, I would speculate. All right. Well, speaking of Obergefell, we'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll discuss an interesting implied retroactive application of Obergefell in a tenant succession case here in New York. We are back discussing a recent ruling against a landlord who was seeking to evict the former domestic partner of a tenant from a rent-stabilized apartment in Manhattan. Can you tell us about it, Art, and how Obergefell came into play? Okay. This uh, this is a case that has not been officially published yet. It's been published in the New York Law Journal uh, earlier in September, involving uh, two men, Kemper Hires and Michael Peterson. Uh, Kemper Hires was the uh, tenant of record in a rent-stabilized apartment on East 51st Street in Manhattan. He uh, first started living there in June of 83, He met Michael Peterson in 1988. Uh, They were dating for about a year before Peterson moved in. They had a lengthy, loving relationship. They lived together as partners in this apartment for almost 20 years. Uh, And they actually tried to get married back in 1993. But in those days, uh, you went to the city clerk in Manhattan, uh, the county clerk, and you tried to get a marriage license. They just laugh at you. Uh, So they weren't able to get married, but as soon as domestic partnership became available in New York City, they actually registered as domestic partners. Uh, Mr. Peterson approached the landlord around 2000, uh, pointing out that they were domestic partners. Here's our certificate. Put me on the lease just like a spouse. Landlord refused, uh, as the landlord could under the rent stabilization law at the time. Uh, Eventually, they came to a parting of the ways uh, under what the court euphemistically describes as challenging circumstances. Mr. Heyer was playing the field and fell in love with somebody else. Uh, and his new boyfriend had kids, so this one-bedroom apartment was not going to work. Uh, so Hires moved out and left Peterson in possession of the apartment. Uh, and uh, it seemed that everything was going to be fine. Uh, you know, This was August of 2009. But it turned out that finding a place that hires and his new boyfriend and the kids could afford and that would be large enough was going to take some time. You know what the the search for a decent living quarters in Manhattan or New York generally can be like. So hires decided to move back in, and Peterson moved out to accommodate him because living together after their breakup was not going to be uh, copacetic. So uh, hires ended up staying in the apartment for another two years while Peterson was living somewhere else. And during that period of time, the lease came up for renewal and hires renewed it. Uh, 
the landlord evidently was out of the loop on all of these developments, as far as we can tell. Uh, but by December of 2011, the housing situation for Hires and his new family was settled. He moved out. Peterson moved back in. Somehow the landlord found out and moved to uh, expel Mr. Peterson from the apartment. And Peterson argued, well, I have succession rights. I've been living in this place for 20 years. And the landlord says, well, you haven't been living there for the last two years. And under the rent stabilization law, when a rent stabilized tenant dies or permanently leaves, members of their family who have been in residence for at least two years are entitled to succeed to the rent stabilized leasehold. But you haven't been here the past two years. And he said, but hires permanently left in August 2009. When he came back, that was just temporary. Well, they sorted out the housing situation. So uh, I should be held to have lived there. And Justice Maria Milan of New York County Supreme Court agreed with Peterson that, in fact, uh, Mr. Hire's removal from the apartment back in August of 2009 was intended to be permanent. When he came back, it was just temporary. Uh, she held that the fact that he had renewed the rent-stabilized lease was neither here nor there as far as this issue goes. And she dropped a very interesting paragraph at the end of the opinion. She, she pointed out these men tried to get married in 1993, and she said uh, this June the Supreme Court ruled that denying the right to marry to same-sex couples violated the 14th Amendment, which means the denial of the right to marry back in 1993 was unconstitutional. That's a pretty far stretch back for retroactive application. But uh, it wasn't the prime basis of her opinion. I mean, the prime basis was her finding that uh, the uh, succession rights of Mr. Peterson vested, as it were, when Harris moved out in August 2009, even though the landlord may not have been aware of it at the time. Uh, but she said, you know, uh, this Obergefell decision, it provides some additional oomph here, uh, the idea that they were unconstitutionally denied the right to marry, and if they could have married... Mr. Peterson would have automatically been entitled to be added to the lease because a spouse has automatic succession rights under the rent stabilization law. So as an alternative basis for her ruling, she treats Peterson as a spouse. And uh, I think that that may be helpful if the landlord takes this up on appeal because it provides an alternative theory for the case and because, uh, frankly, her factual findings might be challenged as uh, stretching things a little bit in order to help someone who actually was living in this apartment for 20 years. And uh, certainly it seems fair to allow him to succeed to the rent-stabilized lease. All right. Very interesting stuff. Some very interesting lawyering there. We'll take another short break, and when we return, we'll discuss some terrific news for transgender individuals seeking refuge in the United States. We are back discussing an important immigration development out of the Ninth Circuit. Why were these three cases involving undocumented transgender women significant, Art? They were significant because uh, the Ninth Circuit, in, in three decisions, the uh, Hernandez decision, the Godoy Ramirez decision, and the Mondragon Alday decision, found that the Bureau of Immigration Appeals, uh, the Board of Immigration Appeals, failed to recognize the significant difficulties facing transgender people 
in Mexico. Uh, all three of these individuals were from Mexico. Uh, all three of the cases arose uh, within the Ninth Circuit, which takes in the entire West Coast, and where there is a significant population of undocumented people from Mexico. Uh, and in these cases, uh, the immigration judge, who happens to have been the same immigration judge for all three cases, Lorraine Munoz, uh, the immigration judge seemed not to understand the difference between sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, that is, when, when these individuals raise claims of persecution that might justify withholding of removal, uh, none of them had filed uh, for asylum within the deadline. So we're talking as a practical matter about withholding of removal or protection under the Convention Against Torture. Uh, she, she says, well, look at all the advances for gay rights in Mexico. You have same-sex marriage in many parts of the country now and Supreme Court decisions that are being implemented, so it will be nationwide soon. Uh, you have protection against discrimination in many areas. Uh, you have an emergence of a gay rights movement. It seems that uh, there is no longer a credible way to automatically assume that an openly gay person is going to be subjected to persecution, much less torture in Mexico. Uh, but as the Board of Immigration Appeals pointed out, that's not the story about transgender people, that each of these individuals had either raised issues about past persecution they had suffered uh, being raped, being forced into sexual encounters by police officers, among others, uh, and that, in fact, the rate of murders of transgender people in Mexico, uh, according to the Board of Immigration Appeals, is the highest in the world. That, in fact, uh, the likelihood that someone who is transgender, who's deported back to Mexico, is going to face persecution and perhaps even torture is pretty substantial certainly substantial enough to consider almost automatically granting protection of the Convention Against Torture to transgender people from Mexico. And so in each of these cases, the decision by the Board of Immigration Appeals was reversed, and the cases were remanded for reconsideration with a very, very strong implication in these decisions about how those uh, decisions on remand should come out, that in fact based on country reports, based on news reports from Mexico, it seems that protection under the Convention Against Torture should be pretty much automatic. But this is the Ninth Circuit, and of course there are people from Mexico who are seeking protection in other circuits, and we don't know how they'll follow. But uh, this is a pretty solid decision, and the Ninth Circuit is, by population and geography, the largest circuit, so it covers an awful lot of people. I know, uh, I, we should add... For a long time, uh, in asylum cases, uh, sexual orientation has been considered a, a category of, uh, I'm forgetting the how it's laid out in the statute. But a particular social group. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and there is lots of case law now recognizing transgender as a particular social group. Uh, but I don't know that we've had express recognition from the Immigration Service on that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, clearly, uh, there are distinctions. I mean, the, the court says there may be relationships between sexual orientation and gender identity. There may be some overlapping there, but they are distinct concepts, and that the groups of people involved are distinct social groups. Uh, so for purposes of uh, adjudicating refugee status and uh, allowing people to stay in the United States even though they are undocumented, uh, the Convention Against Torture is sort of the last resort, and you have to show 
that things are really, really severely bad, that uh, government officials are going to uh, commit acts uh, inflicting pain and injury on people. And in this case, one of the arguments that was made uh, was that police officers are not expressing national policy, that, you know, there are rogue police officers that are terrorizing transgender people. Yeah. The court said a police officer is a public official. So to the extent that what we're dealing with in refugee law is official persecution, persecution by a police officer counts. And that's another ground on which they were lecturing yeah. the, uh, the immigration Because judge. Mexico actually has some, uh, a very decent landscape, at least officially, for LGBT people. For LGB people, yeah. but not T. Right. And that's the point that the court made. Yeah. They haven't hit the T yet, or maybe the problem is they're hitting the T yeah. <laughs> too hard. Uh, so this is good news for uh, transgender refugees from Mexico who are seeking to be protected and allowed to remain in the U.S. Yeah. All right. So we'll take our last short break, and when we return, we'll <clears throat> change gears and bring our listeners up to speed on the Kim Davis saga since we last recorded in early September. All right, we're back to discuss the rest of the story out of Kentucky since the beginning of September. Can you bring us up to speed, Art? Yeah, this is a continuing saga, so we can't tell you how it all turns out yet. Uh, but there have been so many interesting developments involving Kim Davis, the Rowan County clerk in Kentucky. Uh, when last we uh, spoke to you, uh, she had just been held in contempt and remanded to jail where she was to sit until she had purged herself of contempt. And we should mention you put this in the prisoner notes for this yeah, issue. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I kept delaying writing this story until the very end of the month because it seemed like there were new developments every day. Yeah. In fact, there were. In, in my article in this issue of Law Notes, I even have an October 1st new development. Uh, so uh, I saved it to the end, and in the, in the rush of getting uh, stuff done, I actually mistakenly inserted it in the prison litigation section. But then, you know, I, I sent an email to Matt after I discovered this when the, the issue came out. And he, I said, it's a, it's a Freudian slip. I put her in the prison section. He said, you made my day. So, <laughs> you know, so she, she actually ended up spending five days in jail. So what happened was uh, that at the contempt hearing on September 3rd, uh, when she insisted that she would not have anything to do with issuing marriage licenses, she was remanded to the jail. And then the judge... Uh, said to the deputy clerks who were all there, who had been summoned to be there, you know, think it over over lunch, and this afternoon we're going to ask if you're willing to issue marriage licenses. And although her son, who was one of the clerks, refused, uh, some of the others said yes. Uh, so uh, the judge didn't jail any of the deputy clerks. And the next morning, as we reported, the first marriage licenses were issued by one of the deputies. Uh, however, the deputy, of course, couldn't sign as county clerk, so he signed his name as deputy clerk. And where you would fill in the county clerk's name, he put in Rowan County Clerk's Office. Uh, so she was in for five days, and the judge was persuaded that marriage licenses were being issued, and it was safe to let her out so long as she didn't interfere in the ongoing process of issuing marriage licenses. So in a, an order issued the following week, he uh, released her from prison, 
And, and we should add what a scene it was when she oh, came out. Republican presidential candidates were yeah, waiting t- for t- Ted to- Cruz and Mike Huckabee were there, and uh, Huckabee was mugging for the camera and edging Cruz out to the sidelines. Yeah. It was sort of humorous to watch. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so she emerged to cheers from her supporters. And uh, meanwhile, she was under orders by the judge that if she interfered in any way with the ongoing issuing of marriage licenses, she might be held in contempt again and thrown back into jail. So she stayed away from the office for a few days. And the process of issuing licenses continued. But then she came back the following week, and according to allegations by the plaintiffs in the underlying case, uh, she confiscated all the marriage license forms in the office and had new forms done, which did not mention her name in any way. And in the space where uh, it's like by the authority of the county clerk, she had them write uh, at the direction of the federal district court, and she instructed her deputy clerks that they could not sign as deputy clerks, but they were all notaries, so they could sign as notary public. So the marriage licenses that have been issued do not in any way reflect in, in any official written way the Rowan County Clerk's Office. And that raises questions whether they're valid, because under the Kentucky statute, uh, the marriage license has to emanate from a county clerk's office, and it has to have a signification by the clerk or the clerk's deputy that the couple meets the qualifications to be married. Uh, so uh, both uh, Kim Davis and her attorney, Matt Staver, from Liberty Council opined very publicly that they thought that these marriage licenses weren't worth anything. They were invalid. Uh, Governor Bashir and the Attorney General opined to the opposite. They said they thought they were valid. Uh, and uh, so the licenses are, are being issued by the deputy clerks, but not in their official capacity as deputy clerks, as notary publics. Uh, so far, no one has challenged these licenses, and people have been getting married. But the ACLU, which represents the uh, couples in the original case that was filed and decided last August on a preliminary injunction by Judge Bunning, has filed a new motion for contempt, uh, contending that Kim Davis has interfered. Now, there was another form of interference that got international headlines when uh, Pope uh, Francis left after his visit in the United States. The news broke that Kim Davis and her attorney had met with the Pope while he was in Washington. And the way this was presented by Matt Staver and Kim Davis was it was a private audience. It was arranged by the Vatican. The Pope was uh, congratulating her and encouraging her in her position. Uh, And uh, she felt so incredibly honored, and he gave a rosary to her and to her husband and blessed them, which is sort of odd because they're not Catholics. But at any rate, that's the story that was put out. And at first, the Vatican had no comment. And then after a while, they confirmed that a meeting had taken place. But then the spin really started to dismay them. And by the end of the week, a spokesman for the Vatican said she was just part of a general group that had been invited to say goodbye to the Pope when he left Washington. And she did not have a private audience. And the Pope did not in any way endorse her position Uh, He did not get into her case in particular. Uh, And this was also a little interesting because on his flight, as as he does when he's flying back from adventures outside the Vatican, he has impromptu news conferences with the press on the plane. And a reporter prompted by this story specifically asked him what he thought about conscientious objectors 
including government officials who might refuse to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples on their religious beliefs. And the Pope said he couldn't get into specific cases, the details of specific cases, but he believed that conscientious objection is a human right and that any juridical system had to recognize this as a human right. Uh, so that tossed the Pope into the middle of this. And we should say, I mean, many people have uh, been hopeful that this Pope was ready to turn a new page on gay issues and at least was uh, changing the tone and focusing on different things. So this was sort of a, and of course it got an amazing PR while he was here, and this was sort of a, a, a little bit upsetting to liberals yeah. that who sort of felt But then like, the Vatican put out something else. In addition to saying that uh, the Pope was not endorsing, they said, actually, the only private audience that the Pope had while in Washington was the previous day when he had reached out to invite a former student of his from Argentina who was now living and working in D.C. to come and visit with him and to bring his family. Well, his family consists of his same-sex partner. This is a gay couple, and uh, this is a, a fellow who actually had been in touch with Francis back in Argentina when he was the bishop and had discussed gay issues with him when, when Francis opposed same-sex marriage. Uh, this former student had contacted him and complained about the language he used. There was dialogue back and forth. Uh, and so these men were greeted in a private audience by the Pope. And although they hadn't been planning to go public about it, this forced them to go public about it. And they released a little video clip uh, showing the Pope coming out and greeting them and hugging them and kissing the partner on the cheek in true South American style and uh, ex exchanging pleasantries. And so it seems we have the documentation on that. But the only documentation we have on Kim Davis is the Vatican confirming that there was a meeting, denying that it was a private audience, and she's released pictures of the rosaries, as if that proves something. Uh, so there's a war of words going on about what actually happened and who got the Pope's ear and whether the Pope took a position on any of this. But that, of course, is irrelevant to questions of American law, which is what we're concerned with. Right. And so what's going on in Kim Davis's case? She's got multiple appeals going to the Sixth Circuit. And the Sixth Circuit, which had refused to stay uh, Judge Bunning's preliminary injunction uh, and had refused to stay the contempt proceeding and refused to keep her out of jail, uh, has combined all the appeals into one consolidated case, which will be heard uh, sometime after all the briefs are filed. They, they granted a little extension of time on the briefs after they consolidated the cases. Uh, she had filed a lawsuit against Governor Bashir, seeking a declaration from the court that his order to county clerks around the state to comply with the Obergefell decision was unconstitutional to the extent that it forced people to violate their religious beliefs. I don't think she's going to get too far with that. So uh, we'll be expecting something out of the Sixth Circuit. And also, uh, I think Judge Bunning so far, this, this has all been pretrial stuff. So I think we, we're looking for a final decision by him. But it's been clearly signaled in his preliminary injunction opinion and has been clearly signaled by the Sixth Circuit in the short opinion that they issued in denying her request for a stay that they don't see any merit to her First Amendment argument. And when you think about it, if uh, individual government officials could decide whether to perform their official functions based on their personal religious beliefs, we would have chaos in this country. Uh, so uh, generally, when someone is a public employee, they're not speaking for themselves. They're not acting for themselves. They're speaking and acting on behalf of their employer. Their employer is the government. 
Under the First Amendment Establishment Clause, the government may not impose religious tests on who gets a marriage license. And therefore, it seems very clear that uh, she does not have any First Amendment protection for refusing to issue marriage licenses. And it will be interesting to see uh, how that emerges from the Sixth Circuit and whether this ends up before the Supreme Court. All right. Well, that's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or find us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in November.